Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's my joke. It's somebody else's joke, but I'm speaking it. Where does Gandalf buy his clothes? I don't know where. At the Gap of Rohan. I am Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. One hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Gandalf himself, Sir Ian McKellen. That'll break the ice. Ask a Lord of the Rings fan to explain that to you. Mm-hmm. His film Mr. Holmes is just out on DVD. Later this hour, we will speak with comedian Hannibal Burris and with actor Gael Garcia Bernal. He just got a Golden Globe nomination for his role in the Amazon series Mozart in the Jungle. Also coming up, artist Molly Crabapple talks about drawing dancers and detainees, mm. and pub rock savant Nick Lowe shares a holiday playlist. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A jury has failed to reach a verdict in the trial of William Porter in Baltimore. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates. Swiss authorities say they've frozen bank accounts linked to football's world-governing body, FIFA. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Erin McCann. She is a staff editor at The New York Times. Erin, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm talking about panda sex. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't Are you going to be talking to people or just staring at the internet? <laughs> Specifically today, I'm looking at this story out of the Washington Post this week, talking about the fact that it is notoriously hard to get pandas to have sex. Put two pandas in a cage together, they will, they will eat eucalyptus, they will eat bamboo, they will... <laughs> Watch they will, Netflix. Yeah they, yeah, they don't chill. For some reason, <laughs> reason that has baffled scientists... They've made it very difficult to create more pandas. Okay. And now we have a reason why? Is that what we're getting to? Apparently pandas are romantic, and they are prone to falling in love. Oh. It is much easier to get a panda to breed, these scientists have found, if you put them in a room with a panda that they like. As if pandas couldn't get any cuter yes. or more memeable panda love. <laughs> <laughs> Although, is this surprising to anyone? I mean, it's been known for a long time that it's very hard to breed them in captivity. I, I always figured the reason is because they didn't get to pick who they wanted to be with. Well, this is one of those things, I think, where the thing that seems very obvious to all of us watching from the outside has now been proven by the scientists. I like the thought of you, Rico, thinking about pandas mating. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? Your free time. <laughs> I'm only human, Brendan. Uh, but how do they know this? So what, did they do some experiment? So basically, they took 40 pandas at a conservation center. They kept them in what they describe as open-air concrete enclosures with barred howdy windows and gates on either side. (laughs) So you can only look at the other bear. And they discovered the panda had a more positive reaction to some than others. I see. So it wasn't like one panda was playing Teddy Pendergrass and some like (laughs) (laughs) some nice wine. Instead of nice wine, it's more I'm quoting from the Washington Post here. The dude might signal back by scraping his foot or performing a handstand against a vertical surface and urinating. And that's how he tells a lady panda (laughs) that he's interested in her. Wow, they are just like humans. (laughs) Uh, Erin McCann. Thanks so much for this uplifting small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then have a bartender represent it in the form of a tasty beverage. It's our universally beloved history lesson with booze. First, the history part. Right around this time, back in 1855, Congress funded one of the more unusual government programs ever. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Before the Pony Express... There was the United States Camel Corps. The story begins in the 1830s. The USA was expanding west and needed a way to haul people and packages long distances through its new desert land. 
So an army officer from Georgia did some research and proposed a big idea. Import the perfect desert pack animal, camels. Two private camel companies sprung up and failed before they actually got any camels. But meanwhile, politician Jefferson Davis had become a big believer in the camel concept. And when he was named America's Secretary of Defense in the 1850s, he made the dream a reality. The U.S. Army shipped over camels and dromedaries from Mongolia, Egypt, and other exotic lands. Along with them came camel handlers from Syria and Turkey. Soon hundreds, maybe over a thousand, army camels were transporting soldiers, goods, and mail across the West. The results? Mixed. On the upside, camels could haul hundreds of pounds each and rarely had to rest. But they were also super mean and tended to freak out horses. Of course, pro-camel folks said that was a bonus because the camels would deter Native Americans from attacking on horseback. In any case, sometime during the Civil War, the Camel Corps dissolved. Some of the animals ended up in circuses, others as meat, and a few were just set free. As late as the 1940s, you could still spot the occasional camel wandering around the Southwest. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are on the line with a bar called The Esquire in San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio is where some Camel Corps camels were based. And we're speaking to the bar manager, Houston Eves. And Houston, first of all, have you ever considered moving from San Antonio to Houston? I have visited Houston, but have not made it as one of my final destination points yet. It would make it a very symmetrical mailing address for you. It would make it a little confusing, probably, for the postman. <laughs> All right, you you heard the history. What cocktail does that inspire you to make? Um, the Davis's Dromedary, kind of name for the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis. You sort of got the whole ball, camel ball rolling, if there is such a term. Got it humping. What, uh, what's in this thing? Well, I went with a spirit that's kind of from around these parts. I don't know how defined the boundaries were at that point, but this one's from uh, Chihuahua, Mexico. It's uh, Ocho Cientos Sotol, native Mexican spirit. Is that like a tequila? Or? Similar. It's uh, made kind of in a similar way to they make like Oaxacan mezcals. But it's definitely got a character of its own and is delicious stuff. All right. Something unusual, just like camels in the United States. And what's up next? Um, and then it's a uh, little bit of pomegranate and hibiscus syrup that we make, some lime juice and soda. Just because it's delicious or just do pomegranates have something to do with uh, your area? Well, I was thinking of the uh, camel tenders potentially bringing some of their Middle Eastern flavors oh. to the party. Nice. Pomegranate, I think of as a Middle Eastern flavor and is delicious in cocktails. Uh, and how do you finish it off? How do you assemble this stuff? So shake the Sotol, the syrup, and the lime juice all in a shaker, strain it into a Collins glass, and uh, top it with some mineral water. That sounds delicious. I was hoping that you would say you would serve it in a camel pack, those backpacks that you fill with water. That sounds like a good way to spend an afternoon. <laughs> Houston Eves of the Esquire Tavern in San Antonio, Texas, and you will find that and all our historically representative cocktail recipes on our website. Where, by the way, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter and get recipes sent right to your inbox. Beware, it may cause your home bar to swell with fancy bottles of stuff. But there'll be room because your wallet will be empty. Yeah, Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org slash newsletter. 
to eavesdrop. Writer and director Nihar Patel has contributed to Vice, Bloomberg, and the TV series The Rotten Tomato Show. Today we overhear him reading a new piece about a show he'd rather never talk about again. Hi, my name is Nihar Patel, and recently I wrote a piece for McSweeney's Internet Tendency about a series of conversations I've had about Aziz Ansari's Netflix show, Master of None. This piece is called, Yes, I Have Seen Master of None. Quick question, Nihar, is it? I know we just met, but you have an Indian-sounding name, and well, have you seen Master of None? Can I just say it's pretty much the only thing I'm watching right now? Especially the stuff about being a post-millennial actor and trying to balance acting work you're passionate about, but also pay the rent. That scene in the coffee shop when Aziz Ansari is auditioning via Skype? Freaking hysterical. Overall, though, I felt that the show could have really pushed the envelope more comedically. Like, say, girls. I follow Lena Dunham on Instagram. She's such an iconoclast on there, too. What were we talking about before this? I asked, is it extra for whipped cream in my peppermint frappuccino? Sorry, spaced out there for a sec. Quieting screaming kids is nothing short of impossible. Starting to question if I made the right choices to have a family, you know? Speaking of, have you seen Master of None? Aziz Ansari definitely navigates the complexity of major life decisions that even I as a woman in my 40s grapple with. Oh, I'm not asking because you're Indian. It just came to mind randomly as I was looking at your face. If I can be completely honest though, I had some issues with the show. It's not like I didn't want to like it, just was expecting it to be punchier, like the Mindy Project. Oh, I didn't mention that because Mindy Kaling is Indian by the way. Does that answer your question, sir? I guess. So are you parking or leaving? I've seriously driven around this block three times looking for a space. I've been dying to ask you, Nihar. Have you seen Master of None? One night I figured, why not give it a try? I cried I was so happy. After all these years, minorities are finally getting to tell their stories on screen. I loved the parents episode. How the Aziz Ansari character came to see his father sacrifices in a new light. My one criticism was they left a lot of jokes on the table. Oh, and I'm not just asking you about this because you're Indian. I know, Dad. So, what did the cardiologist say? Stent or bypass surgery? OMG, have you seen Master of None? When I saw you in the bar tonight, I was all, I have to find out what this guy thinks about it. No, not because you're Indian, silly. When I first heard about it, I was like, yes! Finally, this comedic genius gets his own show. And it turns out, ironically, it's like not even that funny. <laughs> Though I guess we should have seen it coming because Aziz Ansari's book, Modern Romance, wasn't that funny either. <laughs> it was a lot of data science, which is fine. I got a lot out of it. I was just expecting more Albert Brooks's Modern Romance. Highly recommend that if you want to see a funny take on dating and life. Wait, why are you getting dressed? I thought we were gonna have sex. Before we say goodbye, Mr. Patel, can I tell you that I love Master of None? I know you've seen it, obviously. Personally, I find the nowness of the show to not be gimmicky. Aziz Ansari is staking his claim as the voice of a generation, and he's saying this is the future of TV. Granted, is it a game changer for streaming like House of Cards was? Obviously not. It's nowhere near as good as that show. But it's different for what it is. Any other questions? Yes. Will I get a partial refund because I'm canceling my Netflix in the middle of a cycle? Writer Nihar Patel reading his piece, Yes, I Have Seen Master of None. 
It was published this week by McSweeney's Internet Tendency. And my takeaway is he has seen Master of None. Yeah, I got that too. All right. (laughs) And folks, speaking of internet stuff, we'd like you to know we just released via podcast our first ever holiday special. That's right. We've got Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC riffing on their hit Christmas and Hollis. Rap star Macklemore telling you what Bowie tune to play around the Christmas tree. And we have a sit down with comedian Bruce Valanche. Yes, who appropriately for this Star Wars week is one of the writers responsible for the Star Wars Holiday Special. He gamely let us grill him on his role in creating what one critic calls the worst two hours of TV ever. Mm-hmm. That's all on our holiday special. Grab it from iTunes or wherever podcasts are podcasted. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, comedian Hannibal Barris tells us how to behave. You just act like how the dog's acting. He's a natural. Yep. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, comic Hannibal Barris tells you how to deal with an unruly Canadian canine. A caninian, I think we Ooh. should call it. <laughs> Sorry. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Gael Garcia Bernal. He was a TV star in his native Mexico from a very young age and then broke into the international art house circuit with roles in the acclaimed films Amores Peros and Y Tu Mamá Tambien. He went on to star in movies like Babel, Rosewater, and The Motorcycle Diaries. His latest project is a series for Amazon called Mozart in the Jungle. In it, Gael plays Rodrigo, a wonderkind classical music conductor who's brought to New York to breathe life into the city's stodgy orchestra. The role just earned him a Golden Globe nomination. When I spoke with Gael, I asked him, who's had a better life, him or Rodrigo? <laughs> wow. Uh, that <laughs> catches me off guard, you know? Because, you know, Rodrigo is a very, has a very attractive life in a way, but incredibly chaotic. And, but there is, a, there is something mm. that he has that I envy a lot, and it's an easygoingness. So so maybe maybe that's what happens when, when one reaches that point of genius. Not only does he not sweat the small stuff, but he's a free spirit who seems to be really guided just by whatever strikes his fancy. Exactly. He goes into music. He goes into this world yes. which is completely abstract and it's a tangent and, and I envy that. I mean I, I I wish I could I could do that, you know, and I could ab- abstract myself into that. I uh, on the contrary, I go into very kind of um, mundane, day-to-day soap opera, you know, problematics. Well, you have your own <laughs> art as well that, that you've practiced for quite a while. But as you say, he does he does go into music. How much did you know about classical music before taking on this role? To be honest, I knew nothing. Hmm. But before doing the, the show, I felt I, I did. I mean, I always enjoyed it and kind of appreciated it. and, and uh, But it wasn't something... That it is now, that now I'm completely submerged into the fascination of symphonic music. Emily Wu, the first violin, she played sharp 17 times in the first movement alone. And then the horns came a bar late, which completely threw off the clarinet, and we weren't able to perceive Tchaikovsky's desired dynamic shift from bars 27 to 34. The bass player, he's old. He can barely hold his bow. I don't know who you were torturing more, me or him. There, there is a parallel, though, between you and Rodrigo, which is you both started your craft at a very young age. You've been acting since you were one. Is that correct? I mean, that's what my parents told me, but, you know, <laughs> well, I don't remember. You can tell me the truth. I, I think no, I, th- I actually have photos that, yeah, show that I, I was like the baby Jesus. 
but uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah quite a responsibility right <laughs> like, <laughs> that's right it's all downhill from there no wonder oh yeah yeah everything's just been exactly it's been problematic since then and yeah I've been sort of in this world for a long long time and trying to escape from it uh, actually for many years as well when I was an adolescent I didn't want to be an actor I didn't want to be a professional actor and so in a way kind of I mean there, the, I mean it sounds weird but uh, yeah Rodrigo definitely has stuff about uh, from me as well you know the fact that he started to travel at a very young age and kind of started to see different parts of the world and started to not want to be tethered or put in a niche you know that that is something yes. that definitely uh, also happens happens and happened to me uh, when when Amores Perros and Itu Mamá también came out. Sure. And what's interesting about about that time is you, you know, it sounds like you were on your own kind of journey to discover yourself. And yet Amores Perros and other movies, all of a sudden Mexico was, was cranking out some of the greatest and still continues to crank out some of the greatest film in the world. But the real tipping point, I think, was around that era. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a starting point, definitely. It was very, um, uh, I don't know, many things come came together. Uh Many things uh, combined with uh, with private institutions helping funding. out. Yeah, exactly. Private funding as well, and the government, and uh, you know, one of those harmonic situations where, and uh, also it had to do with a very with a strong awakening or a kind of like uh, with a possibility of media as well. How it kind of started to democratize, and, and uh, I still grew up in a in a in a world where I would go to the cinema without knowing what the hell I was going to see. You know, like mm. um, when I was in secondary school, I would go to the um, National Cinematheque in Mexico and I would just see whatever was there. Huh. It's like, guys, I saw an amazing filmmaker German called Wim Benders, guys. I mean, you have to see this film <laughs> called Paris, Texas. It's incredible. Yeah. And everyone would be, what, what's the name of the of the German director? Uh, Wim Wenders, because obviously they didn't know how to, <laughs> you know, and Wim Wenders, you know, and it was like... And, yeah. and we would write it down. And it was like, when am I going to get to see it? Who knows? You know, because it's impossible to get. Wow, so, yes. Anyways, the the the, the me Mexican cinema started to, to also jump into that democratizing experience of filmmaking. Yes. I mean, there's just many filmmakers that are doing incredible stuff and, and they, with very limited resources still and sometimes with, with, with bigger resources. And you're also winning, but uh, both in Mexican film and in, in America, I mean, you're winning... Awards, you you know, you have some of the best filmmakers in the world right now are Inaratu and Kuran. The world is flat in <laughs> filmmaking. It seems at this at this point. Right at this now. point, it does seem um, like that. Yeah. Well, look, I want to. This has been a wonderful chat, but I want to make sure I ask our two standard questions. Sure. And the first one is simply, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Ah, okay. There is there is a there is a question that kind of always comes and I always um, want to answer, you know, I mean, in a, in a very honest way. And I always find myself okay. in a Bermuda Triangle trying to, to answer that and, and, then, and then acknowledging the fact that it's impossible to answer that type of question in very short words or, or you know, in an interview, yeah. which is like, how, how, is, why, how is Mexico? <laughs> why just why? like yeah tell me quickly how exactly why, why why all this violence that goes on and all this stuff is it is it really mm. like that is it you know i always try to answer it as yeah. honestly as i can and and, uh, and i try to include the totality of the answer as well but it's it, too vast uh, a topic exactly quickly, exactly yeah. because we're talking about the world basically well, I, I will not ask you that question because our show is unfortunately not long enough to begin <laughs> to get at the answer. Um, yeah. So I'll ask you another question, 
which is uh, tell us something we don't know. And now this is something you haven't shared about yourself in interviews, or it could just be an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Ah, okay. I realized that uh, before I could see myself becoming um, a football player or a or a you know a pilot mm -hmm. or an archaeologist or mm -hmm. whatever. Da, da, da. But, okay. but one thing I know I can't be, I can I can't do is be an astronaut. <laughs> why why can't you be an astronaut? Because I have kids now. Mm. Uh, once you have kids, you can't be an astronaut. You mean you, you don't want to leave the planet? You don't want to leave them? No. You're too frightened about what might happen? Not to them, but to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. No, no, certainly. You're afraid that you may disappear and they'll be left without a parent. Uh, exactly, or that I would not be able to, to enjoy them. And so I, I think I cannot, I cannot be an astronaut. I mean, it's, uh, and it's something that, that kind of, uh, it's like a loss of innocence, in a sense. I think what's happening is here, you've seen your compatriot Alfonso Caron's Gravity. And, and I was freaked out. But that's actually, <laughs> that's fiction. Really? That wasn't the, a real movie. They actually, yes. But, Sandra Bullock did not go to space. No, wait a minute. Um, how do they, George, George Clooney is still alive. How do they work out with, the, with all the catering and stuff there? I, no, it, that's not real. <laughs> I you thought, could okay, still be an astronaut. Okay, okay, well, okay. Gael Garcia Bernal, he stars in the Amazon series Mozart in the Jungle. Season 2 premieres December 30th. His work in Season 1 just earned him a Golden Globe nomination. And Rico, yeah. I hope he makes it to the ceremony, because he seemed kind of crushed when I told him Spider-Man wasn't real. <laughs> Wait, what? All right, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer this time around is Hannibal Burris. His latest stand-up comedy special premieres soon on Netflix. He's also written for loads of TV shows, including his own, called Why with Hannibal Burris. And he plays the lovable dentist on the hit series Broad City. On Christmas Day, you can see him in the new movie Daddy's Home. In it, Will Ferrell plays a kind, smooth jazz radio exec who wants to be the ultimate dad to his wife's children. But then the kid's wild and hunky real dad, played by Mark Wahlberg, arrives. Of course. Burris plays Griff, a handyman who becomes a freeloader in Ferrell's home. And Hannibal, welcome to our audio home. Hey, what's up, man? <laughs> Thanks for coming. I woke up, I watched this first thing in the morning the other day. Yeah. At a Viacom theater, and I was yeah. crying. It was so funny. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I saw it and I, I enjoyed it also. <laughs> Can we ask, though, in, in this movie, you, you mostly lounge around and eat cereal and watch TV. Yeah, so some eating cereal and chilling. Yeah. What, what kind of research did you do to prepare for this yeah, role? Did you, is this uh, method? It's just the role I've been preparing for all my life. <laughs> At last. It's the role that my, you know, my mom didn't realize when I was unemployed, just sitting around. <laughs> And only doing open mics at night, that's yeah. what I was preparing for, <laughs> the role of Griff. Griff. I didn't even know it at the time. It's, it's a dream role. Let's, let's talk about your stand-up comedy, actually. Uh, it has a different feel and a different pace than a lot of other comedians. It's a little slower paced. Your stories unravel a little bit at a time, in a way. I wonder, is that a reaction against a type of comedy that you didn't respond to? No, I think it's just how I, I how I talk. I mean, my you've heard comedians say it before, but it's just my stage persona is just an exaggerated version of how I think and just, you know, tell a story and lay things out. But not every comedian's stage persona is just an extension of themselves. You know, Steve Martin offstage right. is not a wild and crazy guy. Did you ever try on a different stage persona? No. A lot of my stuff now is just true stories or what I think, just because it's too much work to <laughs> make up other stuff. A lot of times people find out crazy stories from my stand-up are real 
when I talked about getting a parade in New Orleans. So basically in New Orleans, for $300, you can have your own parade on a day's notice. I said, this sounds great. How do I do this? You got to go to the police station. They have a parade department. New Orleans police has a parade department. There's homicide, there's narcotics, and there's parades. And so there's a Vine video of uh, me having a parade, and so all the comments on it are, whoa, he actually did it. (laughs) Who would make up this elaborate story? Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, that takes too much work. <laughs> but you know what? Yeah. That, so that's one of our questions. So you actually, so you play this character, which didn't seem like a major stretch for you. Yeah. But there is this, <laughs> <laughs> but there is this scene in this movie, which is, it's kind of a meta joke. I don't know if you remember this, where Will's character mm. wants your character to provide him with this cliched movie moment. Yeah. And you say something like, I'm not going to do that because it's fake. Yeah. And we get the feeling watching a lot of your stuff that that's, actually the case it seems like you wouldn't really do anything fake so how do you do that in hollywood right what do you mean how do you how do you maintain integrity basically i I mean i just do stuff i enjoy and and think is funny i mean you know i like sometimes i don't go out you turn down roles yeah i've I've turned down roles or that and sometimes it's good stuff it was one i got recently it seemed like a good script good people in it this character uh has a european accent Put yourself on tape for it. I was like, you know what? Nope. Because I don't think I'm going to get that. And I don't want there to be an audition tape floating around of me doing a <laughs> European accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I don't even want to create that piece of media. So you have a Hannibal filter that maybe protects your integrity there. So you're here to answer our listeners' etiquette questions. You ready for these? Sure. All right. Yeah. This first question comes from Lauren in Philadelphia. And I think she might be thinking about your Broad City character. Mm-hmm. She writes, what is the best way to respond to the dentist when they're trying to have a conversation with you while putting the spit suction thing in your mouth? It's a couple ways. Okay. One, you could say, stop doing that. It's tough to talk. <laughs> Two, you could say, hey, if you're going to talk to me, I need you to ask yes or no questions so I can thumbs oh, up or go. thumbs down. Uh-huh. Another one is you could have your phone there. Possibly. Uh, it might, the position, it might be weird, but you could text the answer or write it in the notes section and show them that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But that's, that's really, good. this is all the practical ways about you it. You can't do that one if you're under the gas, though. You're just, no, not the you gas. just be randomly typing words. People always ask dentist stuff or people write me online. I wish Hannibal was my dentist. It's like, whoa. All right. <laughs> Interesting. I don't think so. <laughs> All right, but those are three practical answers for Lauren. So, Lauren, you have three options. I, I suggest the last one where you use the notes section of your yeah. phone. Very thoughtful. All right. Here's something from Zach in Atlanta. Zach writes, here is the scenario. You're with a group of acquaintances slash friends. Mm-hmm. You're sharing a plate of nachos or wings or dumplings. How long do you wait before eating the last one? Hmm. There's a few factors. If it's somebody's birthday mm-hmm. or somebody's bachelor party, et cetera, then that person gets to have it. Yeah, they get dibs. Uh, if, if all things are equal, if everybody's splitting the bill, then yes. fair game. Somebody's yeah. got to go for it and yeah. just be an alpha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just don't worry about it. Yeah. Although I think there but, is a way to be beta and alpha, right, where you say, hey, that last piece has been sitting there for a long time. Does anybody mind if I take that? Mm-hmm. And if anyone says, yes, I do mind, then they're being the jerk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just got to take initiative. Also, I mean, has everybody been eating equally? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's uh, 
But if it's all equal, just go for it and order another one. Exactly, because Zach is talking about nachos, wings, dumplings. These aren't expensive items. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you're on a college budget, you can probably yeah. scrape together the three ninety five to get another half it. dozen. So there you go, Zach. This next question comes from GBL Canuck on Instagram. Yes, and from her handle and the fact that she spells neighbor with a U, we glean that this person is from Canada. Oh, okay. Should know. But anyway, here's the question. We live in a rural area. Mm. Most of the neighbors control their dogs, but a new neighbor has moved in with three dogs, which are being allowed to roam freely, barking at neighbors and leaving smelly gifts on our lawns. We're a laid-back community, so calling animal control seems a bit extreme. What should we do? Uh, you don't want to call animal control. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canadian, so you're not confrontational. You're not going <laughs> to walk. That's in, the hard part. <laughs> you're definitely not going to walk over to your neighbor's place, look in their eyes and say, hey, tell your dogs to stop doing that. No. That would be insane. No, that, that would be, be crazy. That would be crazy. So the only option is you roam on their property and you just act like the, how the dogs acting. All right. And you, oh, you no. know, <laughs> you go wild. You go wild. You mm-hmm. bark at them mm-hmm. and then leave them gifts. And you leave them gifts. That doesn't seem that Canadian to me either, though. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe the best bet is just to leave Canada. Yeah, maybe they can move. Just leave Canada? They can leave Canada. I don't know. It's, if you live in a rural area, how you cheap to move. <laughs> just pick up the, the house and just it's simple. plant it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much space. Or yeah. maybe you buy a more dominant dog. Oh, All right. You know, you could rule Canada so yeah. with yeah. the dominant one, the right alpha dog. dog. Yeah, you could take over that entire Have country. Your dog, you know, markets territory a little bit. Yeah. All right, there you go, Canuck. Etiquette advice and a lesson in world domination. <laughs> Hannibal Burris, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. No problem. Thank you, and uh, I don't follow those lessons in my real life. It's all a mess. Hannibal Barris, he's in the new Will Ferrell comedy, Daddy's Home. It opens this week. You should check it out. But not yet, because we still got a lot more shows. Stick around. Musician Nick Lowe stops by. We eat Haitian stew and Molly Crabapple chats about drawing blood. That's the name of her book, we should say. Of course. She's an illustrator, not a phlebotomist. Be clear. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, power pop legend Nick Lowe DJs your holiday party, and Rico celebrates Haitian New Year. But first, let's hear from our guest Molly Crabapple. Yes, she is an illustrator and activist whose work has appeared in Marvel Comics and on protest posters for the Occupy movement. She also traveled to Guantanamo to sketch the military hearings there. Molly's memoir is just out. It's called Drawing Blood. And it documents her coming of age, her work as a nude model and burlesque dancer, and her current work as a columnist for Vice Media, Mm. where she covers everything from Occupy to indentured servitude in Dubai. At the beginning of her book, she writes, quote, this is a story about a girl in her sketchbook. So when we met, I asked her, why a sketchbook? Why not a camera or a guitar? Well, I've been drawing since I was four years old. I have always drawn and I've always been obsessed with drawing. I drew before I was good at it. I drew before I knew what I was doing. I just think it was what I was born to do. And even if I was in a jail cell or on a desert island, I would be drawing every moment that I could. Is that something you still do? Like if you're on an airplane or you're in between interviews or doing something, do you find yourself still doodling non-professionally? Oh, God, yeah, all the time. Especially if I'm in a scenario like waiting for something bureaucratic. 
There's just something evil inside of me that wants to do mean caricatures of people who have undeserved power. I think it's one of my vices. <laughs> yeah. I remember one time I was uh, with Matt Taibbi, uh, the journalist. I was working on a book with him. Yeah. And we were in the Manhattan Misdemeanor Court. It's this place where almost entirely black and brown guys are being charged for petty or non-existent crimes. And they're just like sitting there and it's so boring and it takes so long. And I'm supposed to be drawing the judge, but then I start drawing this sort of porcine court officer who's presiding over the whole thing. And he goes up to me because he sees that I'm drawing him and he storms up and he looks in my sketchbook and he says, you're not supposed to be doing that. And I say, I'm allowed to draw in a court. It's a well-established right. And he sort of sulks off. And then I pass the sketchbook around to all of the other guys and they just burst out laughing at this picture that I had done of him. Which was a caricature, I'm assuming, of making him look a little ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I I think I I captured his soul, shall I say. Mm. At one point you write in your book, quote, art is intrinsic and unfakeable as handwriting. And so I was wondering if you could describe the qualities that make up your art. I think that in general, I'm a jittery, impatient, and sarcastic person who also loves beautiful things. And my art embraces all of that. And there's also a lot of ink splatter. I usually use a pen and ink, a crow quill, old school dip pen. Mm-hmm. And I do hyper, hyper detailed things with lots and lots of splashes and lots and lots of little line. Sometimes when I'm making all of the lines, I get into this fugue state. I feel like I'm picking scabs or something. It's like very, very compulsive and visceral, and I just have to do it. Well, to support your compulsion to sketch, uh, you've done many things. You briefly went to college before dropping out to focus on simply being an artist. Uh, But to support yourself, you did what you call the naked girl business. You were a nude model for artists, for people you call GWCs, which are guys with cameras that would place ads on Craigslist. And at one point you say it was money that drove you into the naked girl business, but you also wanted to test yourself. What did you want to test? I think I wanted to burn off the innocence of childhood. I wanted to Hmm. get rid of that limiting idea that a lot of girls have that the most important thing about us is our unscathedness by the world. Because it's very limiting. It's like if you constantly live expecting for the world to, you know, be this big scary rape trap, you can't go out or travel or have adventures or do all sorts of things. You can't live as a free and equal person. And um, while we should all work for a world where no one is in fear of violence... By the same token, sometimes the fear of violence itself is used as a chain against women. You talk a lot about this and you spend a lot of time. Not only were you on the like a very popular website posing nude, but you also did burlesque shows and other things. And th- throughout this part of the book, though, aside from a few creepy guys, it doesn't really come off as super tawdry or super frightening. Do you think you're lucky or is the world of sex work, as you describe it, not as exploitative and crippling to the ego as maybe people think? I mean, everyone has a very, very different experience, and I can only speak for my own experience. Uh, I had definitely photographers that got off on telling me horrible things about my body. Um, Mm. I definitely had photographers where I was scared at shoots, though I certainly was lucky enough that nothing happened to me. But listen, we live in a country where one out of five American women experiences sexual assault. It's Mm. just a dangerous country for women. And most of those assaults come from women's friends and acquaintances and loved ones and partners and men that they're dating. So I think all sorts of worlds can be good and bad. All sorts of jobs in capitalism can be exploitive sometimes and things that you enjoy other times and sometimes both at the same moment. My God, 
But for me, no, it was not the worst thing on earth. It's actually something I'm always very glad I did because I met the uh, women who would always be my muses, these tough, smart, sharp, independent Mm. women. You are probably the only person in the world who's drawn a naked, tattooed, burlesque rebel in America, as well as a Guantanamo detainee. Did you find that your craft was any different, that you were drawing differently while you were looking at these humans in very different circumstances? Not for a second. I just try to do the best, truest image that I possibly can. Because in either of those cases, it is so easy to resort to cliche, right? It's so easy to think, oh, I know everything about this and I don't have to look at the person. Mm -hmm. But the Mm -hmm. moment that you do that, that's when you create really bad art. Mm. And so I think just looking sharply and drawing truly... It doesn't matter what you're drawing. It's just a way of seeing. Is there a through line from all these parts? What's, what's the connection? I think that the skills that I honed drawing dancers at nightclubs are the same skills that I use if I'm drawing occupation soldiers or if I'm drawing people in a courtroom. It's the same knack for capturing detail, the same way of drawing really, really fast, holding your extra markers in your mouth, you know, so that they don't fall all over the place. It's all of the same craft, the same techniques, and all of the same sort of skepticism and cynical eye. It's just one thing is in a realm that many people don't think is intelligent, which is the realm of like sexy girls and performance and glamour. Mm. And then the other one is in a box that people do think is intelligent. The current events, the foreign affairs reporting that you're doing now. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, the the man box as opposed to, you know, the little woman (laughs) box, which isn't important, obviously. So Rico Molly was, of course, being sarcastic. I figured that part out. (laughs) And audience, you can get more of her sense of humor and learn about her life in her new memoir, Drawing Blood. Plus, bonus, you can see her art and not just hear about it. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, this week, I got a little ahead of myself, and I celebrated New Year's Day. Well, a glass of champagne is always nice. It it is. I have it sometimes for breakfast. (laughs) Really? We'll talk later. (laughs) I sip something without bubbles, I should say. It's called soup jumu, which is a soup with squash and macaroni that is tradition. Yeah. And it's traditionally eaten on New Year's Day in Haiti. Okay. And there's a really great reason for that. To learn about the soup and its history, I headed to the Haitian restaurant T. George's Chicken in L.A., where the owner, T. George Laguerre, serves Jumu once a week. Before we got to that, though, I asked him to give me a quick overview of Haitian cuisine. Uh, Haitian, it's almost like a fusion. You have the French culture incorporated with the African culture. Haiti, of course, was occupied by the Spaniard, then the British... And that's what brings the quality, the texture that you see in Haitian cuisine. All right. Um, Let's talk about this soup, which is why we're here, New Year's soup. Soup jumu, a very meaningful thing for me, because my grandmother used to own a restaurant where she only served one item in the menu, squash soup, only on Sunday, and it will take her the entire week to make that preparation. She will boil the beef bone marrow like two to three days prior. In my case, my beef bone marrow has been boiling for the last three or four hours. That's the base. It's like a bone marrow broth, I guess. That is correct. 
and then the squash. This is a, there is a great story behind this soup, is my understanding, as far as why it's consumed on New Year's in Haiti. Is that correct? Definitely a great start, because squash soup was forbidden to consume by the slave. Only, only slave owners could have it. A slave owner, the master, mainly they were French. So when Haiti became independent, to celebrate that, we wanted to show to the white master, now we are independent, so we are going to consume the squash soup, and we choose January 1st to do that. So there's a lot of history wrapped up in this soup, both personally and nationally for you. Let's go. I'm going to show you in my kitchen how it's been prepared, then you will have to taste it before you leave today. All right, so here we are in the kitchen. We're uh, in front of a stove. There is a huge, looks like steel pot of something delicious boiling and some pans full of stuff. What's happening? Well, what's happening there is the beef bone marrow, and that's where you're going to come across the flavor that you're looking for. Now, uh, So this has been boiling for hours, it looks yeah, it's like. it's been boiled for hours. So now, as you can see, we have boxes of squash. Yes, it's and just pre-prepared prepared. squash. Right. If I was in Haiti, I would probably go to the supermarket, to the open-air market, and buy the real squash. And it would you... be a more intense proposition to prepare that, okay? So be, Cutting up squash is kind of a, a hassle. Right. Uh, then you have to boil it, remove the seeds. It's a challenge. God bless America. You can yeah. just open a box and there it is. You can say that loud, right? <laughs> Loudly, we could say that. So there you go. We're going to add the squash. Now, to really make a squash soup, celery, give it the flavor, we put potato in there, we dice them, we put taro root. Oh, we taro roots in there? Yes, and then parsley, carrots, another thing which is squash soup. Key lime, it's another essential ingredient. Oh, you're going to put key lime in this? Key lime juice, the ingredient that goes in everything in the Haitian recipe. Really? And if I go to your house, I see you cooking and I didn't see any key lime or sour oranges. Then I'm a fraud. You're not real. <laughs> You're not legit. All right, so we've watched this thing boil down. It's now looking nice and rich and orange. Two more ingredients that we're adding. That would be macaroni and cabbage. So macaroni. So you wonder where macaroni came from, right? I'm assuming this is a European influence. Definitely, because these were the things, remember... It was forbidden. It was something that the master could consume. I was going to say, because so far this, this dish has a lot of vegetables, it has bones in it, nothing that I would think that somebody who was you know, poor, for instance, wouldn't be able to get, but this is the symbol of what they couldn't have. That is correct. All right. So we have here a beautiful dish of soup, which has all the vegetables in the world in it. Here we go. I'm going to take a bite. Oh, that's delicious. Is there cilantro on this? Yes, I forgot cilantro. I love it. So that also even gives it, you know, for me, I associate cilantro also with uh, Latin America. So there's all sorts of continental influences happening with this, all different continents. Big time, big time, big time. And I'm not the only one here eating this. Gary Perard is here. He's a, a friend of George's. You're going to demonstrate to me the traditional end of the soup meal? Yes. Traditionally, what's done is um, there's usually a piece of bone in it, beef bone, and to suck out the marrow of the bone and uh, the sauce that's still in the marrow is one of the critical things to do. And it's, 
even in the chicest you know, restaurants that you might be in, you, you see people just digging in, sucking on bones. A lady of, uh, of uh, some stature sucking on a bone. So, All right, but you don't have any bone left in your bowl. Yeah, well, we could also chew it to where there is nothing. <laughs> but I noticed George does have a bone left, so oh, you're going yeah, to do, gonna do the honors? You see it? Classy. It must. It's, it, it's classy. George Laguerre literally sucking the marrow out of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he serves soup jamu once a week at his restaurant to George's Chicken in L.A. And now we've planned your New Year's Day menu, basically. Let's give you something for the rest of the holidays, namely music. And for that, we turn to Nick Lowe. He's been writing and performing great power pop hits since the 70s, including Cruel to be Kind and What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, later made popular by his pal Elvis Costello. Of course. Last year, Nick released the Christmas album Quality Street, and he just followed it up with the Quality Holiday Review, recorded live with surf rock band La Straight Jackets. Here's Nick with a Yuletide playlist that's as cool as he is. Hi, everyone. This is Nick Lowe here. The idea to do a Christmas record was not mine. In fact, I was quite snooty about it. It's very prevalent in the UK. You know, people think that uh, to make a Christmas record is, well, is what we call naff. It's like uncool, but it, it, it's uncool like Perry Como. It's very sort of cardigan and pipe and slippers. Here are a few of my Christmas favourites, which I don't think are, are naff at all. Maybe this Christmas will mean something more. Maybe this year love will appear. I think this is a lovely song. This is um, Maybe This Christmas by my great friend Ron Sexsmith. I know lots of people in the music business, and some of them I'm not really crazy about their music. But that is a mere detail. I really like them. But occasionally I'm a great fan of their music as well. And uh, Ron is definitely one of those people. It's hard to beat. Maybe there'll be an open door. Maybe the star that shone before. I heard Elvis Costello, who's also a big fan of his, say something along the lines of he lives next to his own private tributary leading to the Melody Lake. Most of his stuff, it's very accessible, but it's got real soul. And that's a real difficult thing to pull off, having something that doesn't sound sappy and wet, but also can move you. Maybe this the uh, second song is a little ska, a little reggae music. I think I'd choose this one by the Silvertones, Bling Bling Christmas. I love ska and reggae, but I'm one of those people who sort of... uh, I've got to be careful what I say here, you know. I'm one of those people who think that actually Bob Marley sort of messed up ska and reggae music. I think the same thing in a way about the Beatles as well, because they made people think that anyone could write a song. They can't. They used a lot of stand-up bass, you know, uh, there's lots of horns on it. I love the horns. Why not a reggae tune for Christmas? Just because it doesn't snow there. (laughs) In every other respect, it's absolutely spot on. (laughs) 
my third dinner party uh, record will be something a little more uh, jumping. Christmas Time in Louisiana by Johnny Allen. He's the sort of Cajun Elvis Presley, really. He's a great, great singer and a great guy. I'm rather name-dropping here with me and my fancy friends. He hasn't been well lately. The last time I saw him was when uh, I played down in New Orleans with my band. Now he's on the mend, and so happy Christmas, Johnny. If I was going to spin one of my Christmas tunes at this party, I'd have to um, do Christmas at the airport, just so I could show off. The terminal was seething Without much Christmas cheer The song is a bit of nonsense, really. It's a bloke who's trying to make it home for Christmas. His delayed flight is rescheduled and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he finds that the whole place is closed. Actually, somebody pointed out to me the other day and they said, well, it sounds like he doesn't really mind. <laughs> it sounds like he's rather pleased about it. It looks like Christmas Christmas at the airport I took a set of x-rays They came out rather well It looks like Christmas Christmas at the airport this year I'm doing Santa's sleigh ride On the baggage carousel a dinner party soundtrack from Nick Lowe. His album with Lost Straight Jackets, called The Quality Holiday Review, is out now. And folks, that's the dinner party download for this week. Next week, it's our best of 2015 episode featuring our favorite moments from the crazy ride that was this year. Mm-hmm. And we want your help. Tell us which of our stories stuck in your brain over the past 12 months, and perhaps they'll make the cut. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Our favorites of the year include Jackson Musker, who produces our show, Ina Patak, our associate producer, and Christina Lopez, our associate digital producer, Bill Lance, who engineered this week, and executive producer Larissa Anderson. Thanks for listening. Bon appetit. Don't save me any turkey. I found a burger in the-